Well, this is week two of More Than, and uh, I made an appeal last week. I want to echo it this week that uh, you do everything you can to be part of this series. If that means you're here, if that means you're, you're tracking with us online, uh, whatever the case, this has kind of a layering effect. Um, you may think you know what More Than is all about, but there is so much about it that we want you to be informed on all of it. So take, uh, take some time if you miss a week and check us out online. I think it'll be uh, well worth uh, taking that little bit of time and investment. Have you ever stepped on a scale and didn't believe what it said? Have you ever done that? You know what I'm talking about, right? You, you look at it and you go, that can't be right, right? Maybe it was at the doctor's office. Maybe it's at the gym. When I was growing up, the scale in our home was that way. You would get on it and you would go, man, I didn't realize. I feel like I've gained weight. <laughs> it wasn't for a long time, but I found out later that somebody whose name will remain anonymous, was recalibrating the scale so that it makes you weigh more by the scale. It made, it, you got on it and it said you actually weighed more than you did. Now that's wrong on so many levels. It creates unnecessary emotional pain, especially if you're a little conscious about your weight, right? It's wrong. You know, think about it. If you get on a scale and you weigh, and it's not properly calibrated, it'll give you this false reading. And that can be extremely discouraging. It can be far worse. It can be, for some of us, we're really trying, and it becomes almost devastating. Now, I don't know that you and I use the word calibrate all that often, unless maybe you're a, an engineer or a mechanic. But when equipment is poorly calibrated, it can create danger, confusion, and resentment. The Bible even talks about this in Proverbs 20, 23. It says, the Lord detests differing weights and dishonest scales do not please him. So when we're thinking about calibration, the most important vital instrument to be calibrated is our heart. I'm not talking about the organ that pumps blood through our bodies but about the part of your being that evaluates right and wrong, the part of you that determines priorities and values, the part of you that makes decisions in the areas of your integrity, morality, and spirituality. Every decision you make passes through that heart, your heart. So if your heart is fully aligned with God, you will make a lot of good decisions. But if your heart is out of sync or out of rhythm with God's heart, trouble is somewhere down the road for you, more than likely. Our hearts must be intentionally calibrated because they can easily become misaligned with God's word. God said this through his prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17, 9. He said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That means that your heart can deceive you. Do you realize that you've probably been deceived by yourself far more than you've been deceived by other people? Your heart is a valuable instrument, but it's also dangerous. It doesn't have to be. 
but it has the potential to be. You hear people say frequently, always follow your heart, which is terrible advice if your heart isn't in sync with God. You should never follow your heart unless you're certain that your heart is following Christ. Now the good news is that even though you can't control the accuracy of the gas pump, they may be cheating you. You can't control the blood pressure gauge in the Rite Aid that says your, your, uh, your, your blood pressure's too high. We'll just leave it at that. That happened to me yesterday. And you can't control the scales in the produce section or at the checkout counter. But you can calibrate your heart. You're the one person with God's help who can do that. In fact, the Bible commands you to proactively determine how your heart is tuned. And we want to talk about that this morning. In Colossians, the third chapter, verses 1 and 2, we're going to use this as our our kind of anchor text this morning. If you have your Bible or your your, uh, device, you want to turn to it. Paul says this to the church of the Colossians. He says, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your heart your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. What Paul is saying here is this. God focuses on our hearts because we focus with them. God focuses on our hearts because you and I focus on this life with our hearts. In Colossians, the second chapter, the previous chapter, Paul reminds the Colossians that they've been buried in Christ when they were baptized into him. Now, when does a burial take place? Usually after someone has died, correct? There's a reason that we talk about new life in Christ because you and I, first of all, we need that. We need that new life. It's, it's different than the old life. You know what Christ can do in a person's life. And when we believe in Christ and we're baptized into him, the very first thing that we do is allow Jesus to put to death the old sinful person that we once were. Baptism depicts the death of our former selves. Back in Colossians, the second chapter, verse 12, Paul says, having been buried with him in baptism. Some people refer to baptism as the watery grave. That sentence in Colossians 2.12 just assumes your baptism included a burial of your old self. That's why you'll often hear us baptize someone here and we use the words death, burial, and resurrection. Well, in Colossians 2, Paul unpacks this whole idea of the death of the old self and then the burial of that old person. But in Colossians 3, he moves on to what happens the moments following that burial. He says in verse 1, Since then you have been raised with Christ. The death and burial you experience in Christ is essential. The sinful you needs to die. That person was nothing but trouble. And as soon as that happens, you're raised to a new life. You know, there's nothing sadder than to see a person receive new life and then to squander it. 
a friend of mine around here, Adam Smith. I know a lot of you know him. He's part of our ministry team here. For years, he worked with ex-convicts and recovering addicts, helping them to transition from incarceration to life after prison or life after jail. And one of the most disappointing things he saw was when someone gains their freedom after serving time behind bars, receives an opportunity to start over, but falls back into the same old patterns, often, often returning them back to incarceration. In fact, this may be hard for some of us to wrap our heads around, but some of them intentionally violated their parole in order to go back to a world that they knew. Even though they hated prison, at least it was familiar to them, so they would often return to it, foregoing their freedom. It's tragic. Yet, often that's what people do spiritually. They receive this new life in Christ, but they're overwhelmed by how different it is. Sometimes they think it's really difficult. They become discouraged or lonely. The Apostle Paul tells these people how to succeed in their new lives, following Jesus. His advice was, recalibrate your heart. What we read in our text here in verses 1 and 2 of Colossians 3, the way you recalibrate your heart is by making sure your heart is set on the things of God. Things above, he says, not earthly things. The title of this series is More Than, which comes from the passage we kind of dug into last week, Ephesians, Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. And the, the title is found in verse 20. It says, now to him, he's talking about God, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. This series, more than, focuses, focuses specifically on our inner life. It's about our heart, what we're talking about today. You see, we could do a lot of things in our flesh, but that's not where God says it should come from. What would we be capable of if it came from a heart that was in sync with God? The More Than initiative was started to reduce the principle of our loan so that we might reduce our payment, thus releasing more resources to be used for ministry. If you'd like to know more about all of that, we're going to be talking in the town hall, as Steve mentioned, following the second service over in the gym. We'd love for you to come over and you can ask questions. It'll be very interactive. I hope you'll do that. But more than isn't just about reducing our debt. In fact, it has the chance to be so much more than just that. We will see through this series, I believe, that more than can be accomplished in our faith, in our hearts, in the perspective or the vision that we have, even in our generosity, when our hearts are calibrated in alignment with God. And that's where life in Christ actually begins. It doesn't begin with outward obedience, it begins in our hearts, and it works its way outward. Way back in the Old Testament, God tried to orient his people to think about their faith as more as an internal thing. 
The prophet Ezekiel, speaking on behalf of God, said this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Following God's decrees is largely external. But God wants these external things to be a a byproduct of the condition of our hearts. If our hearts are in tuned with God, it won't be as difficult to be obedient to his commands. If our hearts are focused on something else, it's almost impossible to consistently follow Jesus. If you're consistently disobeying God in some part of your life, that's probably a heart problem. Maybe the best way to evaluate our hearts is to think about them in terms of appetites. You remember Bruce Springsteen, the boss, said everybody's got a hungry heart. You remember that? If you, you're too young for that, Google it. It's a classic. Everybody hungers for something, don't they? Your heart has an appetite for something. The question this morning is, what do you hunger for? What do you hunger for? Paul tells us to develop hearts that hunger for the things of God. But there are some common appetites that compete for God, with God for our hearts. These competitors are posers because they never can bring the true fulfillment that they promise. But that doesn't stop them from pursuing us. The first of these counterfeit appetites is romance. Let me explain what I'm talking about. The Bible makes it clear that God created man and women to be together. But God never intended for people to become completely obsessed with the opposite sex, and certainly not as early and as intensely as it happens today in our culture. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Back in the late 80s, early 90s, I was the minister of young adults at South and Christian And most of the people in that ministry group, huge group, most of them were single. And over the course of my eight years of doing that ministry, which I absolutely loved, I saw a lot of attempts at romance. And I saw some disastrous crash and and burns, okay? For instance, there was this one guy. He went up to this young woman. Obviously, she was out of his league. And he uh, asked her, he said, uh, would you want to go to the uh, monster truck show with me? <laughs> and li- he didn't know this. Uh, I kind of would have guessed it. Most women are not into monster trucks. Did you know that? He found out that day. Yeah, she was gracious. There was, one, there was one young woman in our group who asked if she could go to Promise Keepers. Now, if you're not familiar with this, Promise Keepers is a men's ministry that has these conferences all over the U.S. And there would be anywhere from 20 to maybe as 50,000 men or more at these, these huge, huge stadium events. And she thought it would be great if she could go. Surely she could find a man at one of those events. But probably the worst example of this I had a front row seat for. This young guy... He was kind of quiet, went up to one of the prettiest girls in this entire, entire group, and he said, 
would you want to go to a festival with me next Saturday? And I was sitting there, a couple of us, right there, while we saw this little interaction happen. And she said, no, I'm sorry. I'm going to be, I'm busy on Saturday. And he, and it was awkward. You know, I felt bad for the guy. But it didn't stop him. He went back for another bite at the apple. He said, he said well, what about Sunday? Because the festival is on Sunday. We could go Sunday afternoon. And she said, no, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be busy on that day too. And then we just sat there in that awkward moment, right? Now, I want you to know that that guy and that gal got married. They're happily married today, not to each other, but to other people. But they're happily married So it can happen, right? But it doesn't always happen in that moment. Some people will go to extreme lengths to try to impress members of the opposite sex. They want to be noticed. They'd like to have a relationship. Our society thinks that this boy-girl obsession is hardwired into us, but it isn't. Not to the degree that it is. we see it manifested today. We do develop a natural interest in the opposite sex, but... This total fixation, this obsession that Americans have with the opposite sex is fed by our culture. It's natural to a point, but it's highly exaggerated today. And it causes many teens and adults to behave foolishly. Some fixate on another person to the point that they end up totally embarrassing and humiliating themselves. Listen. It is understandingly disappointing when a relationship doesn't work out. But our first mistake is assuming that all dating relationships will work out. In fact, they don't. Pessimism usually is considered a bad thing. But most people are so optimistic when they experience a romantic spark of some kind that they lose a sense of consciousness. There are a million ways that a relationship can dissolve and just a few ways that one can survive. Shows like The Bachelor and The Bachelorette show us all the ways that relationships won't work and we tune in every week. But it's a tragedy if you think about it. Thinking that every date will lead to a love connection is like genuinely thinking you're going to win the lottery every time you buy a ticket. It's just unreasonable. Now, if you're not married to someone and the romance dies in a dating relationship or it never actually gets off of the ground, don't be surprised. And the sooner that you stop obsessing over that disappointment, the better off you'll be. Take control of your emotions and move forward. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying you can do that. Take some sense Talk some sense, excuse me, into yourself the way that King David did. In Psalm 43, verse 5, he says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. It doesn't make sense to think that your world is ending just because a romance is, is ending. It does make sense to trust that God has a plan for your future, It's amazing how much power you can have over your emotions when you refuse to indulge emotions that are disconnected from reality. What were the odds 
that that girl was going to go to the monster truck show. Really small. Well, don't give that too much authority to control your life. Well, there's another appetite that competes for domination of our hearts. It's similar to romance, but it's different. And I'm talking about the counterfeit appetite of sex. This is the physical obsession with the opposite sex. And some of you are going, wasn't that what we were talking about in romance? No. But you're ahead of us now. In Colossians 3, 5, Paul says this, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. That's pretty strong advice from the apostle. This is a life and death issue. He's pointing out, Paul's playing the role of our spiritual cardiologist, and he's given it to us straight. Kill any appetite that competes with God to rule your hearts. An appetite like that will never be satisfied with just a small part of your heart. It wants the whole thing. It won't be satisfied until it dominates your whole heart. Now listen, I'm not saying that you're evil if you're physically attracted to the opposite sex. In fact, God created you with that, attra- with that attraction. But he expects you to rule over it so that it doesn't rule over you. And you know that there are many in our culture today that are just absolutely sexually obsessed with the member or members of the opposite sex. God expects us to rule over that. Don't allow it to rule over us. Well, there's a third counterfeit appetite, and that is appetite of greed. Greed. You can tell that greed is dangerous just by the way that Jesus talked about it. In, Matthew, or in Luke, the 12th chapter, verse 15, he says this, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. It's, uh, it's a warning. This is a serious warning that Jesus is giving to us. Greed is one of those things that kind of sneaks up on a person. Most of us only recognize the types of greed that we see in other people's lives. Yet, we deny that there are other types of greed, including the ones that contaminate our hearts. I recently read about a highly successful businessman who once was asked by a charity, a well-deserving charity, to make a sizable donation to the charity. The businessman listened to them make their case or what their need was, and then he said, I can understand why you approached me to make a contribution. Yes, I do have a lot of money, as you know, and yours is a very important cause. But I wonder if you're aware of how many times I get asked for requests. Did you know that my mother needs 24-hour nursing care? To which the charity said, no, sir, we were not aware of that. Did you know that my sister is raising a family of eight all by herself? No, sir. Did you know that I have one son who is in a drug rehab program and another son who is doing volunteer work overseas? No, sir, we didn't know about any of those things. The man said, well, if I didn't give them a single dollar, what makes you think I'll give you money? Some of us become so attached to our money and our stuff that we, we won't even show care and consideration to people near us who have need. 
legitimate need. That is what an unmanaged appetite can do to a person. The more you serve the appetite, the more you compromise yourself and the more your heart is contaminated by the wrong kind of hunger. The really dangerous thing about an appetite is that it never actually completely ever goes away. Have you noticed that? It can be momentarily satisfied and you can think it's gone forever. And if it's a sinful appetite, you might say, okay, I'm never doing that again or I'm not gonna ever give myself over to that again. But it always has a way of coming back, right? Sometimes in the next few days or maybe even in the next few hours, it's like going to the Golden Corral buffet and walking out of there swearing you could not eat one more bite only to four or five hours later, you're hungry again. Here's the truth. Your appetites will either rule you or be ruled by you. And you know that you're the one who has the determining choice. An appetite will always try to dominate. Any hunger you, will, you have will attempt to seize control of as much of your heart as you or I will allow it. That's why greed is so dangerous, why romance and sex can be so oppressive to our hearts. It grows. It's insatiable. It wants to dominate our hearts. But there's a hunger that is good for your heart. Paul points it out in Colossians 1 and 2. It's an authentic appetite, and it is the appetite of hungering for God. Just like there are healthy foods that are good for your heart, there is a hunger that does not damage us spiritually. Jesus told us about this appetite that can strengthen us from within. In Matthew, the fifth chapter, verse six, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That is the one appetite in the Bible that is described as a blessing. Set your hearts on things above. Hunger for the things of God. Now, like many appetites, the things of God are an acquired taste. Some people say, I'm, not, I'm just not a spiritual person by nature. And you know what? Probably most of us would identify as that way one at one time or another. Maybe that's how you feel today, and that's okay. Truthfully, it be known, none of us are spiritual by nature. Romans 3.10 says, there is no one righteous, not even one. But some people grow to the point of hungering after the things of God, but it's not natural if you don't feel naturally led to sit down and have a Bible study and a prayer time, that's normal. It's not natural, but it is possible. It's an acquired taste. I looked up the term acquired taste. Uh, there's actually a definition for it. It says, a taste that is not natural or innate, but which has developed through habit or learning, something that is appreciated only after initially being regarded as unappealing or unpleasant. Have you ever acquired a taste for something? 
I've, there's a list of foods. I, I kind of brainstormed for a little bit a few weeks ago on foods that I've acquired a taste for. Oysters, I love. Oyster stew is one of my favorite dishes. Uh, Brussels sprouts. I hated them when I first tasted them. Blue cheese, love it. I used to hate cheese altogether. Blue cheese, one of the stinkiest cheeses, love it. And kimchi, right? I tried it because it was supposed to be good for your gut health. And my wife loves everything. She hates it. So when we go to a Korean restaurant, I get her kimchi, which is like a treat now. And I eat it with the chopsticks because I look like I know what I'm doing. But the one thing about it is I didn't like all of those foods when I first tasted them. In fact, most of them I kind of was repulsed by, but over time I acquired a taste for them. Probably the most, the biggest, most special acquired taste that I have is coffee. Now I know a lot of people in our culture like coffee, but when I was a kid, I had no interest in coffee at all. I didn't like it at all. I could drink it, three parts sugar, one part coffee. I could consume that. And then uh, a few years back, my oldest daughter was home from college. I made a pot of coffee for breakfast and poured her a cup and said, do you want anything in it? And she says, no, Dad, I drink it black. (laughs) I was like, I drink it like a kid. I put soda pop in my coffee. (laughs) I started thinking about it. Maybe I should try that. Because we we bought really good coffee. And you know what I found? I actually liked the taste of really good coffee. Now, I still put a little cream and sugar in bad coffee. I'll never turn my nose up to a cup of coffee. But I've grown to really appreciate good coffee to the point that I look forward to it every single day. We all have acquired tastes that we've developed over time that have become an appetite to us. I crave coffee now. And there are a lot of habits and hungers that start out as curiosities or experiments, but they end up growing into sinful habits, sinful appetites. That suggests that you and I can actually develop an appetite for God and for what's important to him. We can learn to hunger after God if we just ruthlessly purge our hearts of every appetite that competes for control of our heart, and we set our hearts on him. And then we will know that we're actually acquiring a hunger for God when we see growth in our lives spiritually, when it's not just about us, but it is about other people, when it's not just about what I want to do, but it becomes about what God wants to do. I want you to take a second and just watch this short video. It gives you an example of what can happen when our hunger is after God. Watch this. I really need to make this purchase? There's so much more I could be doing with this money rather than purchasing more jewelry. This 
12 and 15 reminds me, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I need to refocus my priorities. God, I thank you for giving us hearts that you have an interest in. And I pray, God, that all of us could come to realize the value of our hearts lining up with yours. It's easy, I think, God, for us to think about ourselves because we are pretty selfish by nature, but how much better life can be, how different it can be when we're in alignment with you. Not just in this moment, not just in this life, the abundant life that Jesus talked about coming to give to us, but for all eternity. That our lives can actually change, our lives can actually be moved when we start to look to you to be that acquired taste that maybe we didn't start out wanting to do the things that you said were important to us the things that your word points out but then when we start we we actually see the fulfillment and the meaning that our life has purpose and it's not just about us and it's not just empty but it actually can make a difference and then when we link a bunch of hearts together like that, that are all committed. What, what kind of initiative, what kind of, what kind of accomplishments could come? Lord, I pray for every person in here that you would protect them from these counterfeit appetites. And we only looked at a few of them today. There are a lot, a lot of things that want to steal our heart and control it. They lead us in ditches that never bring fulfillment They promise all kinds of things, and they never deliver. God, protect us from that. Help us to acquire the taste to hunger after you. Draw us close to you. Join us together as one body through this more than. Unite our hearts, God, to not just eliminate debt and release resources to do more ministry, but, God, that we would be here so that others might know you and that we could reach further and we could engage more because we had just a little more resourcing to do it with. God, will you unite us together? We pray asking that you would be at the center of our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name.